following is a teaching message from Shaw Community Church. For more information on Shaw, for our teaching resources, visit www.shaw.org.nz. We're going to press on in our series this morning to chapter 6 in the book of Isaiah. So if you've got a Bible and, uh, or you've got it on your device, open it up. Hopefully some of you are still reading through the book of Isaiah. And I think you should be up to this week about chapter 18, if that's the case. And reading another four or five chapters uh, along with the Bible Project. If you're not sure what any of this means, just look up the Bible Project app, which is called, simply called Read Scripture. And key in on that, and we are just reading through Isaiah together as a church while we work through this series, partly so that you're more familiar with this book of the Bible and partly to help you develop the simple discipline of being in Scripture each day uh, or regularly. And uh, that is just a basic, fundamental, healthy practice of the Christian life. It's just being in the Word of God. And uh, sometimes doing it with other people uh, is helpful and gives you a little bit more of an incentive to track through because there's like a cohort of people going through this. So keep going, stay with it, keep reading, uh, and uh, hopefully that's uh, encouraging and a blessing to you. So this morning, Isaiah 6, and Helen Rayner is going to come and read this passage for us. Thank you, Helen. In the year that King Uzziah died... I saw the Lord seated on a throne, high and exalted, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above them were seraphs, each with six wings. With two wings they covered their faces, and with two they covered their feet, and with two they were flying. And they were calling to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. At the sound of their voices, the doorposts and thresholds shook, and the temple was filled with smoke. Woe to me, I cried, I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. Then one of the seraphs flew to me with a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with tongs from the altar. With it he touched my mouth and said, See, this has touched your lips, your guilt is taken away. And your sin is atoned for. Mm. Thanks, Alan. Last year, when our family was in Canada, we went to the Vancouver Aquarium. And one of the attractions in the Vancouver Aquarium is this 4D movie experience. I hadn't heard of 4D movies before, but apparently this is a thing. And so what it was, you, you go into this movie cinema, there's a huge screen there, and you pop on your 3D glasses... So it's 3D to start with. And this was a shark movie. All right, so this is all like footage of sharks attacking other fish. It's great. And uh, so you're 3D, but then as you're watching this, this film, as well as that, you have all of these multi-sensory experiences coming at you. So at a particularly dramatic point in the film, there's these mist sprays that will spray you with mist, so you get wet. Uh, and, your, and your seat moves, so it kind of reflects what's going on on screen. And apparently there's even smell machines that help you smell. I don't think they were working the day that we were there, but there's these smells that come through the room as well. And uh, about halfway through the, uh, the, the whole experience, our younger two boys completely just packed up. It was, it was just too much for them, especially Ezra. He was only five years old at the time, and this was just overwhelming for him. So Anna ended up taking the, the, the younger two boys out. Only me and Josh made it to the end. Uh, and it was probably a good thing that they weren't in at the end because the last thing that happens, there's this climactic moment where some crazy shark attacks a fish and right at the moment where he strikes the prey this knob in the back of your seat pokes out and jabs you 
in the back. <laughs> and you get this terrifying fright. And so I think if Ezra had been in there, they would have finished him off. So thankfully he wasn't there. But um, maybe in, in some small way, you know, as we come to approach this passage in Isaiah, I'm hesitant to even make this link, but maybe in a very small, very tenuous way, Ezra's experience in that cinema was maybe just a fraction of a taste of what Isaiah experiences in this vision, in this scene. And of course, really, there's no comparison. Really, I shouldn't even be comparing them because there's no human experience that can ever compare to what Isaiah saw. And what Isaiah sees is certainly not entertainment. This is, this is not anything that Disney can create. Right? This, is, this is nothing that Cirque du Soleil could ever come up with. This is far, far beyond anything that we can imagine or produce or manufacture with all the stage effects and the CGI in the world. Nothing can ever compete with this. But at the same time, in some way, I just thought as I was reflecting on this passage, I wonder if Ezra's experience in that place, you know, Isaiah might have felt like a little child in some ways in this space, in this context where he's totally overwhelmed by what he's experiencing, uh, which is a real encounter with the living God. And I wonder if he felt like a little child, just overwhelmed. And probably there were times he wanted to get out. Probably times he would have liked to exit to the right. But he, he didn't get that privilege. He didn't have the option of exiting. He, he, just, he just had to stand there and take it and experience what God revealed to him. So we've got a challenge on our hands this morning because we've got to try and imagine the scene. And that's difficult to do because we're in a school gym. And, I mean, look around. It's not the most exciting building, is it? You know, I mean, what we're looking at here are screens and, and a scoreboard and some musical instruments on stage. But what we've got here is this extraordinary vision of Isaiah coming into the presence of God. So this is going to take some imagination. All right, are you up for this? This is going to take, we're going to have to engage our hearts here. We're going to have to engage our minds, our biblical imagination in trying to get a taste of what Isaiah experiences here. Because this is an extraordinary experience, an extraordinary vision. It's a multi-sensory experience. This is truly 4D. You know, there are, there are spectacular sights and there are staggering sounds that he hears. Uh, there, there is touch. There is smell. There is even taste as the cold touches his lips. All of his senses are engaged in this experience. And I imagine for Isaiah, there was just a range of emotions that he was experiencing with this from terror to wonder to, to being afraid to being awestruck and worshipful and confused and everything else. He must have just been a bundle of emotions. So we're going to try and enter into this. And try to get a little taste, a little fraction of a glimpse of what Isaiah experiences here before the throne room of God, okay? All right, let's do it. Verse 1, it, it, as, as this chapter starts, you get this interesting little detail in the text here, which seems a bit out of place. Uh, it starts by saying, in the year that King Uzziah died. And it's a bit funny because it seems like quite a trivial detail to start, like quite an earthly detail to begin such a heavenly vision. But... In fact, this detail is quite important uh, for a couple of reasons. One is that it gives you the opportunity to place this in time. So Isaiah is saying, this is a real experience that happened. I'm not making this up. Like you could put this on the calendar. There was a year that Uzziah died. That's when this happened. This is not an illusion. This is not like I'm hallucinating. This is not some weird thing that never really took place. Isaiah said, no, this happened. And it happened at a particular point in space-time history. 
And secondly, King Uzziah was a very strong king. He was a powerful king, and he was particularly powerful uh, with military. He, he built a strong army in Judah. He fortified the city of Jerusalem. He raised up an army that could defend Jerusalem and Judah pretty well against some pretty powerful nations. So people looked to Uzziah for security. They looked to him for stability. People felt relatively safe because Uzziah was on the throne. And then eventually Uzziah dies. And people feel like, well, what do we do now? There's this uncertainty now. What's happening? There's an instability within the nation because now who's going to protect us? Now where does our security come from? Now who's going to defend us against these enemy nations? People are feeling weak and insecure. And it's into that context that God gives this vision. And part of what he's saying is, I am the only king you need. You don't need to look to Uzziah or, or any other king. I will protect you. I will give you security. I will defend you. I will fortify you if you will only look to me. This is the message that Isaiah is receiving. So, here we come to the vision itself. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord, high and exalted, seated on a throne, and the train of his robe filled the temple. So the, the context or the scene of this vision is the temple in Jerusalem. And everybody Isaiah is talking to and writing to would have known about the temple. Very familiar for them. This is in Jerusalem. Uh, it was a landmark in Jerusalem. It was the center of Jewish life. And so people knew the temple. People visited the temple all the time. But they didn't visit this part of the temple. That Isaiah has this privilege of being drawn not just in the outer courts of the temple where anyone could go or Jewish people could go. He gets drawn right into the center of the temple complex, a room called the Holy of Holies or the most holy place, this inner sanctuary in the temple where nobody got to go except the high priest, except once a year, except for a very specific purpose. But Isaiah gets drawn right into the very throne room the very center of the temple. And as he comes into that holy space, what he sees in the, in the most holy place there is not the Ark of the Covenant, this box that's usually there. What he sees is a throne. He sees the throne of God. And on the throne, he sees the presence of the Lord. He says, I, see, I saw the Lord. I saw Yahweh, the God of Israel. And we don't get much of a, a physical description of what God is like. Uh, it's like Isaiah can't even bring himself to really describe the appearance of God. There's not much to go on as far as what God looks like here. Uh, the most Isaiah can do is give you a description of like the outermost part of God's clothing, just the train of his robe. It's like God is so beyond comprehension. All Isaiah can do is just describe the extremities of, of his garment, just the train of his robe. But he says even the, tra even the train of his robe, it fills the whole temple. So kings wore these, these long flowing robes as a sign of their royalty, as a sign of their, their monarchy and their importance. And Isaiah says, even, even the train, just the train of this king's robe fills the whole temple. So this king is vast and his authority is immeasurable. He is high and exalted. His throne is high and lifted up. In other words, God is the king over every other king. Higher than every other rule, every other authority. He is lifted up above every other rule. Other rulers may try and lift up their thrones. Other rulers may try and exalt themselves. They may even try and declare themselves to be gods. And they did, but no throne will ever compare with the throne of God. 
No other ruler can ever compete with the rule of God. He is high and lifted up. His name is above every name. His rule is above every rule. His authority is above every authority. He alone is the Lord, the King of all, the God over everything. He is Yahweh. He is high and lifted up. This is the God who Isaiah is seeing. And then as he looks at the throne, he sees above the throne these creatures swirling around, flying around above the throne. In verse 2, it says, Above him were seraphim, or seraphs, each with six wings. With two, they, two wings they covered their faces, with two they covered their feet, with two they were flying. Now these, these creatures, these seraphim, Usually when we think about seraphim, you probably don't think about seraphim much at all, do you? Doesn't, it doesn't really enter the conversation at parties, does it? The seraphim. But for people that do think about these creatures, they, we often associate them with angels. That we think about them like types of angels. And in a sense they are. They are heavenly messengers sent by God. But these, the, the word seraph, it literally means fiery one. Fiery one. So... And, and the artistic depictions of these things tend to be a cross between a serpent and a dragon. So, this, so don't think like cute, cuddly angel with a halo and a harp and wings. This is a terrifying creature. This is an intimidating creature. This is like something out of Stranger Things. This is something really weird and really unfamiliar and very, very foreboding. You don't want to mess with the seraphim. You don't want to meet a seraphim in a dark alley. And, and, but they're not evil. Don't think evil. They are on the side of God. They are his messengers. They are his servants. They, their role really is to guard the throne. They are guardians of the throne of God, which is why they're so fierce and fiery and protective. But they are quite foreboding creatures. They're quite intimidating creatures, these fiery ones. And here they are encircling the throne. They've got six wings each. It's pretty impressive. With two wings, they're covering their eyes because nobody can see God. No, not even Isaiah. Not the, not, the, not the seraphs. They cannot see God. So they're covering their eyes. With two wings, they cover their feet. That's another sign of modesty in the presence of God. And with two wings, they're flying. And as they're flying around, they're calling out, calling out, crying out to each other in verse 3. And they say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. So in this passage, in this vision, we don't get a lot of information about what God looks like. We're pretty short on details as far as his appearance goes. What we get is a description of God's nature. What we get is a description of God's essence or his character or his being. And at the heart of that description is one word. Holy. That, that's simply what it comes down to. What Isaiah is seeing here is the God who is holy. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. So if we want to know God, if we want to worship God, we need to understand what it means to call God holy. What do we mean when we, when we talk about God as holy, when we declare that in our songs and we say that in our prayers? What do we really mean by that? I think a lot of the time when we... Think about God being holy. The way we think about it is we kind of have in our minds this hierarchy of beings. It's kind of like a big long list 
of every, every being, every person, every, every creature, if you like, in some kind of ascending order of holiness. And we think of God being at the top of that pile. Right? So you think like God is the most holy, he's the greatest, he's the most powerful, he's the most awesome, glorious being that exists. So God goes right at the top of the pile. And then what would be next down? Maybe an angel. It's got to be the next most holy thing. And then you're coming down from there, other angels. And then we get to really holy people. So who's the holiest person you can imagine? Maybe someone from the Bible, someone like Moses or David these holy people, and then maybe other Bible characters. And then we get down to just normal people in history. Maybe, you know, church fathers like Augustine are in there somewhere. We keep coming down. Somewhere way down on the list is us. I don't know where you put yourself. Way down the list of holy people. We're not that holy. So we go right down the list. But then, of course, we've got to have a few people below us. You don't want to be the, you don't want to be the least holy. So we keep going down the list. We get to the really unholy people. Yeah, we get to the country music singers down there. <laughs> You know, these people, whatever categories in your minds are there, you know, the unholy ones, the terrible people that do terrible things, whatever it is. And we kind of just have this whole scale in our minds. And so we, we, when we say God is holy, I think in our, mentally we go to that big list and we think that what we're saying is God is at the top of the pile and all these other things, do, 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 they all have their place underneath God. Now, whatever the rightness and wrongness of that list that's just not what holy means. It's just not. If you, if, you, if you want to take that list and say God's at the top of the pile, then that would mean that God is preeminent, which is true, right? I mean, that would mean that God is great and powerful and awesome. That is all true. But that's not the same thing as saying God is holy. It's just not. Holy means something different. The best word... To describe holy is the word other. Right? One simple word. Other. To say that God is holy simply means that God is other. He is other than me. He is other than you. He is other than every other created Thing. The word itself means to be set apart or even to be cut apart, to be cut out. And what we're saying by God being holy is that he is totally set apart from all created things. So maybe a better way, if you want a mental image here, uh, to, to think about this is imagine one big bucket. And in that bucket is every created thing. Okay, without any particular distinction. So let's not think hierarchies and more and less holy, just every single living creature. So every angel, every demon, right, that, including Satan himself is in this bucket because he's a created thing. Uh, every person throughout history, and let's just for fun add in every animal as well, right down to the, the, the common slug. They're all in this bucket. They're all just lumped in there together. And this bucket has a big label on it which says, that which is not God. Now, in that bucket, there are all kinds of different beings. right? So you could take an angel out of that bucket, and you could take a cockroach out of that bucket. Yep. And you would say, that those two beings are vastly different to each other. How can you possibly even compare an angel with a cockroach? But the point of God's holiness is that in a way, both the angel and the cockroach share the same identity. 
they are both created things. They, they exist, in a sense, on the same plane. The distance between them is finite, not infinite. They are both part of the created order. They both have a common origin. They both have a common source. They both have a common creator. They are, in fact, connected to each other, even though the distance between them is huge. So you've got all these vast creatures, but they're all on the same plane of existence, the same plane of created existence. And then outside of that bucket, there is one being and one being only, and that is God. And he, it's not like he's in another bucket. Don't think of buckets now, because even to put God in a bucket, we've, all, you know, we've already lost ourselves. He's not in a bucket. He's not in a category. Did you see how hard my job is to try and explain the inexplicable here? You can't even say God's in a category because he defies your categories. Any kind of mental uh, formula, architecture that you come up with to try and put God in that category, in that bucket, he breaks out of it. He just simply will not stay there. He alone is God and he alone is other. So even though over here, the angel and the cockroach seem vastly different, God is as separate to the angel as he is to the cockroach. Does this make sense? Because the distance between God and the angel is infinite. And the distance between God and the cockroach is infinite because they are created beings and he alone is God. We might say, well, God seems really similar to an angel. He seems much more like an angel than he does to a cockroach. Yes, but these are still created beings. They are still that which is not God. God alone is holy. He is outside of any box we try and put him in. He's not on our plane of existence. He's not in our categories. He's not on our hierarchy. He's not on our spectrum. He's on his own spectrum. He's not even on a spectrum. He's off the spectrum. He's in his own reality entirely. He is set apart. He is holy. This is why the seraphim say, holy, holy, holy. Three times the word is repeated, not just for emphasis, we think it's just because they're saying, you know, like danger, danger, danger for emphasis. No, no. If people want to emphasize something in Scripture, they say it twice. Like Jesus saying, truly, truly, I tell you. But three times is only used of God. And it symbolizes this fact that God is outside and above and beyond. He is totally outside of the human Ability to comprehend him. You cannot simply take the idea of greatness, elevate it to its highest extent, and think you've arrived at God. You haven't. You've arrived at the greatest idea you can imagine of greatness. That's it. You can't just take the, the most powerful idea or being that you can possibly imagine, extrapolate it, and think that must be what God's like. No, he's outside of that. All you've done is arrive at your highest conception of power. God is off the charts he is far beyond. You cannot conceive of him. There is no language. You can hear me struggling even to find the words to try and describe. There is no word in no language that can ever get close to describing. He's beyond our imaginings. He is unfathomable. He's inexplicable. He's incomprehensible. He's uncontainable. He is above and beyond. Even this vision that Isaiah sees is, is just a vision. You know, there's no way that Isaiah could ever see the full holiness of God because God is other. His total otherness means he's outside of our ability to, to see him, to lay eyes on him at all. Isaiah just gets a glimpse. 
He gets a fraction of a taste of something. God comes and he relates to Isaiah in ways that Isaiah can understand. He gives him this image of the temple. That's familiar to Isaiah. He uses something familiar to reveal something that's completely unfamiliar to Isaiah. But we've got to remember, these are just words. These are just images. This is just language to try and describe a God who is ultimately indescribable. He is holy. He is above us. He is beyond us. He is totally transcendent. He is holy. He is other. And it's God's otherness that Isaiah is coming to appreciate in this vision. So Isaiah sees just a fraction of this, just a little taste of God's holiness. But even that little taste causes Isaiah to completely freak out. Even this, this vision causes Isaiah to become completely undone. And you see Isaiah's reaction in the next verse. Have a look at verse 5. Woe to me, I cried. I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. So what Isaiah is experiencing is what, what happens as we come closer to the holy presence of God is that we become acutely aware of our own sin. Is this true? And Isaiah is not really getting anywhere close to the, to the full and direct and true presence of God. But even just creeping a little closer than we get to go in ordinary life, Isaiah is struck by his own brokenness. We don't think about our sin much in ordinary life. We don't, we don't think about our sinfulness because we're just getting on with life. We're just doing life. We don't think about that. But you come into a place maybe like this morning where we're thinking about this a little bit more. And we're talking about the holiness of God. And we're considering his holy presence. And maybe we're drawing a little nearer. And suddenly we become, or we should become, much more acutely aware of our own sinfulness. Our own evil hearts in God's presence. Because it's like coming near to a furnace. It's like drawing near to a blazing furnace. And the closer you get to that furnace, what happens? You start to feel the heat. Start to feel the searing heat on your flesh. That's what's being exposed here. You're coming towards the holy presence of, his, of God. And part of his holiness is that he is totally set apart from all sin. Totally set apart from all evil. And we, as, as sinful, evil, broken people, we start creeping towards that furnace of holiness. And we start to feel the heat on our own flesh. We start to feel the heat exposing our sinfulness. And we find ourselves saying with Isaiah, woe is me. I'm a man of unclean lips. I'm a woman of unclean lips. We're a people of unclean lips. We're a people of unclean hearts. We're a, we're a people of unclean actions, yeah? We're a people of unclean habits. We're a people of unclean thoughts. We're a people of unclean eyes. We're a people of unclean television viewing. We're a people of unclean internet watching. We're a people of unclean lives. And our eyes have seen the king. And we should feel with Isaiah that, that sense of desperation. It's almost a sense of hopelessness. That here we are as broken, sinful, evil people. And there's this infinite chasm between us and the blazing furnace of God's holiness. And we can't take another step towards him because he is other. He is pure and perfect and totally outside of our imaginings. And we just can't get there. So we are lost, and we're ruined. And it's right at that moment, 
that Isaiah hears this word of grace. And this is what we need to hear in our lives. Look at what happens to him next. Seemingly out of the blue, verse 6, Then one of the seraphim flew to me with a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with tongs from the altar. With it he touched my mouth and said, See, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. It's an extraordinary moment. It's incredible. And, you know, that, that image of the, of the coal touching Isaiah's lips, I mean, that makes us squirm. That's painful. But the image, I think, is the idea of cauterizing a wound, of, of burning the wound to stop the bleeding, to stop the hemorrhaging, to seal the wound up. That's what's happening. The, 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 the seraph is coming to Isaiah and saying, I'm sealing up that wound. I'm sealing up that, that bleeding of sin in your life so that your guilt can be taken away, so that your sin can be atoned for. And Isaiah hears that God is not only holy, but somehow in his holiness, he's also showing mercy. And this must have been a confusing experience for Isaiah. But we look at it now, and maybe this is where your mind's already going. We see and hear a little taste of something that's coming down the track in the biblical story, don't we? We see here a little taste of something that's going to ultimately be fulfilled in Jesus. Because that, that seraphim, that creature, when it went to the altar to get that coal, it's very likely that the altar it went to was the, the altar of burnt offering. That's the altar where Jewish people would come and they'd bring the animal sacrifices and they would offer those animals uh, to atone for their sin. And the animal would be offered as a substitute for the person. So instead of being the person being killed, which they deserve to be because of their sin, the animal, the bull, the goat, that was killed in their place. So that's the altar. And that imagery points ultimately towards Jesus of Nazareth, whose life became the ultimate sacrifice. Jesus' life was taken. Jesus' life, in a sense, was laid on the altar. And on the cross, Jesus bore all of our sin. He bore all of our guilt. He bore everything that keeps us from the holy presence of God. He took that on himself so that that barrier between us and God, that infinite chasm, can be removed so that we can come into the presence of God, so that God can go to the altar of burnt offering, in a sense. He can go to the altar on which Christ is slain, if you want to picture that, and he can take a coal from that altar, and he can come to you with that coal and touch your lips and say, see, because of my son, because of Jesus, your guilt is taken away, and your sin is atoned for. Not because you deserve it, but because Christ has died. Because the ultimate sacrifice has been made. And so your sin has been taken away. So you can enter in. Now you can enter into the holy presence of God. It's not that God becomes any less holy. Don't think for a minute that happens. It's not that God kind of then comes down to our level so that he can relate to us. God remains just as holy as he always was. He is still, God is still that blazing furnace of holiness. He is still today that consuming fire of holiness. But now what happens, it's like Jesus is this fireproof blanket. You could picture him like that. He's this fire retardant blanket. And he wraps us in this blanket so that we can come into the midst of this blazing holy furnace of the holiness of God wrapped in the blanket of Jesus. And we can stand in the presence of God. We could never stand there on our own. Could never stand there in and of ourselves. But Christ carries us to the presence of the Father. 
He wraps us in himself so that we can now approach the throne of God. God is just as holy, but we can stand in the midst of that blazing furnace. We can relate to, even though he is other than us, he is still outside of all of our imaginings, but unspeakably, he gives us that privilege of drawing near. This is what we have. It's just like Isaiah. Isaiah got to go right into the middle of the temple, right into the most holy place. And this is what God does for you now. He says, I want want to invite you in. You get to come right into the middle of the temple now. You get to come into the Holy of Holies. In fact, the Bible says now you can approach the throne of grace with confidence, not with arrogance, not with cockiness, but with confidence, confidence that's based on what Christ has done for you. But you and I now can, can approach the throne of grace because we know it's a throne of grace and a throne of holiness. And so now we have this amazing privilege of drawing as near as Isaiah to the Holy One of Israel and standing in his holy presence. And we get to stand there because of his grace. Ravi Zacharias puts it this way. When God is our Holy Father, sovereignty, holiness, omniscience, and immutability do not terrify us. They leave us full of awe and gratitude. Sovereignty is only tyrannical if it is unbounded by goodness. Holiness is only terrifying if it is untempered by grace. Omniscience is only taunting if it is unaccompanied by mercy. And immutability is only torturous if there is no guarantee of goodwill. There's a lot of big words in there, but what he's saying is this. The holiness of God, it's a terrifying thing. And it would be a terrifying thing if there was no grace. If there was no mercy... If there was no love in the nature of God, it would be an overwhelming and terrifying thing, and it would be our ruin. But because holiness exists alongside God's love and God's mercy, our response to God's holiness does not mean we need to cower in fear. It means we can have reverence and awe and worship. We get to approach God rather than flee from His presence. God's holiness is Incredible. But God's grace is immeasurable. So we can enter in. Somehow in our lives, we've got to hold this together. This is the challenge for us now. So in our lives, in our worship here, in our prayer life, we've got to somehow hold together the holiness of God and the grace of God. And we've got to remember that the same God Isaiah saw is with us always. Same God Isaiah saw is here today. I think we do a pretty good job of talking about the love of God, talking about the grace of God. We're often talking about that here at Shore. But maybe it is the holiness of God that we can easily forget. Maybe it's that side or that, that, that reality of who God is that we can lose sight of the holiness of God because we live in a culture that tends to trivialize everything and dumb everything down. And dilute everything. And I think what happens is a lot of the time Christians kind of apply that to their faith. And we end up trivializing God. And we kind of bring him down to our level. And we want him to be the manageable God. You know, we want him to be the God who is my personal therapist. The God who kind of makes me feel better. Helps me to have better emotions. He's kind of like my personal life coach. Helping me with my goals. This sort of thing. You know, that's kind of the God that we want. We want him in the little box. We want him in our bucket. We want him in a manageable size. But this passage reminds us God is not going to play that game. Even if you try and play that game with him, he's not going to play that game. 
We've got to remember when we gather here, we've got to remember who it is that we are coming to meet with here. You know, you, you come in and say, hey, you know, I'm looking forward to meeting with God today. Are you really? Are you really looking forward to meeting with him? Do you know what that means? Do you know what would happen if you really met with God? You're not going to come away with a whole lot of warm, fuzzy feelings. It would be an overwhelming experience. Utterly, and you would not be standing or even sitting. You would be flat on your face in the presence of the Holy One. We've got to be careful when we say things like that. I just can't wait to meet with God. I want to hear from God today. Do you really? Do you really want to hear from God? Because you think of the Israelites standing at the foot of Mount Sinai. They begged Moses not to let them hear from God. They said, please don't let God speak to us directly or we will die. Moses, you go. You go and talk to God and then come back and tell us. You tell us. This is the whole idea of a mediator. You tell us what God said, but do not let God speak to us directly or else we will die. And yet you and I, we bowl into the presence of God, want to hear from God, want to get a word from God. And I know what we mean. I say that too. I'm just saying we've got to be careful with what we wish for. We've got to be careful with how we approach. Sometimes I think we can approach the throne too casually. We can approach the, and maybe this happens particularly in churches like ours. We're kind of low church, you know, so we don't have a lot of formal traditions. We're pretty relaxed. That's good. We're a come as you are kind of church. I can wear jeans when I preach. We're pretty, you know, we're pretty informal here and that's good. But maybe the danger with churches like ours is we can lose sight of the holiness of God. We can sometimes lose sight of the utter transcendence of God. You know, I mean, imagine walking in here. Someone walks in here on Sunday morning and said, just please don't let me see the face of God this morning. I can't bear it. You know, don't let me. I, I can't bear to meet with God directly. Put me somewhere in the back, you know, where I'm just kind of slightly removed. Imagine if we had that kind of sense of it, you know, that I, in, one, in one sense I want to meet with God in another sense I just can't even imagine myself standing in his presence. He is so overwhelming to me. His holiness is so great. He is a consuming fire. You know, if we really encountered the presence of God, what would our worship be like? Because the same God Isaiah saw is here. And we can sing these songs and we can pray prayers and we can go and take communion. But what would happen if you were standing in worship one Sunday morning and suddenly Isaiah 6 happened? And suddenly the curtain was pulled back and you saw what Isaiah saw. And you saw the throne. And you saw... God, high and lifted up, and you saw the seraphim circling the throne, would that change your worship at all? Would that maybe do something to you? Would that possibly change the posture of your heart? Because the reality is the same God is here. He is here. We just don't comprehend him in the same way. We don't get that same vision, and so we become much more casual, chummy, chummy, buddy, buddy. But we just need to take a minute to remember the God whose presence we dare to enter. Annie Dillard kind of puts this slightly humorously. Maybe we need a bit of humor today, lighten the mood. Uh, she says this, It is madness to wear ladies' straw hats and velvet hats to church. I don't think any of you really do that anyway, do you? We should all be wearing crash helmets. <laughs> Ushers should issue life preservers and signal flares. They should lash us to our pews, for the sleeping God may wake someday and take offense. Or the waking God may draw us out to where we can never return. You know, she makes a point, right? You know, I mean, the ushers, they should be handing out life preservers at the door. You know, rather than just ushering you to your seat, it should be like, are you ready to meet with God today? You know, do you, know, do you even have the faintest idea of what that means? 
to be able to fade it, find this comprehension of what that means. We should be tied to our pews because this is the ride of our life. And it's not just chasing emotions and it's not just chasing experiences. It's recognizing that we stand and we sit and we worship in the presence of the one who is holy, 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 the thrice holy God. It's an unbelievable privilege. So we just got to take a breath, I think, before we pray. And remember, you know, before you charge into the presence of God with your shopping list, tell him what you need from him this week, just take a breath. Could you just stop for a few seconds and remember who God is? Remember who you are addressing. Can we just take a breath before we worship? And just remember who it is whose presence we're encountering, who we are addressing or even speaking about in worship, that this is holy ground because God is here. Can we take a breath even before communion and just remember the extraordinary grace of God that allows us to stand in the blazing furnace of God's holiness? I think the person who, for me, has done more than anyone to give me an image of God's holiness is C.S. Lewis. And the image he used, of course, familiar to you, is the lion. You know, in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, he chose a lion, Aslan. And the genius of C.S. Lewis is he put the most fearsome creature we can imagine, the lion, next to the vulnerable children and brought them together in a story to show us something about encountering the presence of God. Uh, and as the children encounter Aslan, there's this great little scene in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe where Susan is just thinking about what it's going to be to meet Aslan. And she's talking to Mr. Beaver. She says this, I thought he was a man. Is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe. But he's good. He's the king, I tell you. That is the God whom we worship. Don't think for a minute he is safe. The minute you think you've got him figured out, put in a box, brought down to your level, got a formula or an algorithm by which you can think about what God is like, you have failed. He is not safe. He is an unsafe, untame, wild, dangerous, and unpredictable God. But thank Jesus, he is good. Thank God. He is very, very good to us. And he showers us in his mercy. So we can approach the throne with confidence. And we should and we must to find mercy, to find grace. But let's never lose sight of the holiness of the one whom we meet there. Let's pray. God, even as I start talking to you now, I'm just so aware of your holiness in my own limited way. God, I think of the verse that says, You are God in heaven, and here I am on earth, so I'll let my words be few. There's really no words, Father, that can describe you or contain you. So we just sit in your presence, aware of your holiness, and extremely grateful for your grace. Thank you, Father. Amen. This has been a teaching message from Shaw Community Church. For more of our teaching resources, or to donate to our teaching resource ministry, 
or for more information on Shaw Community Church, visit www.shaw.org.nz. Alternatively, you can email office at shaw.org.nz or phone 09 415 0455. Thank you for listening.